Lord, we just thank you that you're really with us. Father, thank you for the reality of our union with you. Along with all creation, we sing to you. Father, now I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would help us see through your eyes today. What an awesome thing to see through the eyes of God. Help us see the world as you see the world. Help us see as you see. This can only be done by the, the miracle of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think I will get this one. morning saints Clark will be back here next week to finish that series and um, it's an awesome series on um, what we have in Christ and how Jesus himself has been made unto us all these things so um, if you're visiting for the first time please come back and hear Clark share next Sunday I want to share some thoughts this morning, saints, about how God sees the world. And I really believe, saints, that if we really got these four things in us and we saw these four things, it would change the way we relate to the world. It would change the way we we reach out to the world. It would change the way we minister grace. Another title, I guess, for this message would be how to preach grace to an unbelieving world. How to preach grace, how to preach Jesus to an unbelieving world. These four things, I believe, are such a key to how we relate to other people. Okay, let's take a look at them. First, is it's really important, saints, that we see that people are born blind into this world. The people are born blind. When the Spirit of God was anointed Jesus, the Scripture says that he quoted Isaiah, and the Scripture said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the good news. And one of the things he was sent to do was to open the eyes of the blind. It's, it's powerful to see, to think like this. People are born blind, spiritually blind. It's very important to see that. If you, th- if you believe people are born where they can see the things of God, you will minister completely different toward them. People that are born blind do not need information. They need a revelation. See, if you think people can see, when I say see, I mean not physically, but if you think they can see with their own natural reasoning, if they can understand the things of God with their own natural mind, then you will approach the natural mind in that, in that thinking in a way that really just delivers information to people. 
But if you see that the natural mind, that the things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural mind, they are blind to the things of God. We were blind to the things of God when we were first born into this world until our eyes were opened. Our eyes were open. So there's a blindness. So you, so you relate to people totally different when you see as God sees. People are born blind to this world. We were all blind at one time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was blind, but now I see. And think about how we relate to blind people in the natural. If someone's physically blind. Think about how you accommodate them. How you move chairs out of the way because they're about to stumble. Or you, you're very considerate because the person can't see. That's how we should be with people in the world. We should be very accommodating to their, their lack of sight. They, they, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They're blind. This changes everything. If you see that people are blind, like we were at one time, then you are not trying to just give them information. You are relying on the Holy Spirit to give them a revelation. Very key. So what, what revelation are we giving it with our words? Saints, I believe that, well, first of all, how did the blindness happen? Because that's the key to how to bring sight is to understand how it started. It started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the scripture says their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness. See, what Satan calls sight, God calls blindness. See, Satan said, I give you sight. Now you see your nakedness. Now you see yourselves. Now you're a self-conscious being. But they lost the sight of God. They lost their sight of Him. They became blinded to Him. So much so that Adam, who had walked with God in the garden, had fellowship with Him, was never afraid of God. Now suddenly he was afraid of God. He was hiding from God. He was in shame. He was trying to cover his nakedness. And God came through the garden again to walk with Adam like he always did and said, Adam, where are you, Adam? God hadn't changed. Adam was hiding from God because he was afraid of God, the scripture says. And Adam said, I, 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 I heard your voice and I, I hid because I was naked. And I was ashamed. And God said, who told you you were naked? Awesome statement there. See, God is not into revealing our nakedness or showing us our sin. He's into revealing himself to us. And so here's Adam hiding. And so God graciously covered them up, the first shedding of blood to cover them. But he removed them from the Garden of Eden so they couldn't eat of the tree of life more for their protection than anything else. Because if they had touched the tree of life, if they had eaten of the tree of life, they probably would have just dissolved. If the life of God had touched them in that sinful state, they would have been destroyed. So God moved them out of the garden until the right time when the tree of life would reappear. And the tree of life would reappear. And because God would do something so awesome, he would allow them to eat of that tree again, which is Christ. But they were blind. They were born blind. They were not born blind. They were born with eyes, with sight. But they became blind in the fall. Then all their children, all of us, from the sons, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, were born blind. Jesus came and said, I have been sent to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus said this. so awesome. He said, he said, if you say you see, 
then your sin remains. But if you say you're blind, you have no sin. Awesome statement. You know what he was saying, I believe, saints? The key is in the word remains. You see, if people, the Pharisees thought they saw, they were offended that Jesus said they were blind. They said, we know the law. We're not blind. Are we blind also? They would ask Jesus. And that's when he said, if you say, you're, if you, say you see, then your sin remains. But if you say you're blind, you have no sin. And what he's saying there, saints, is that he was saying, Jesus speaks in these broad, awesome words that, that reveal more than just the few words that he speaks. He, he sees beyond that. And I think what he was seeing beyond that is this, that when a person admits that they're blind, when a person admits that they don't see, then Jesus says, and you'll see, you'll see me, you'll see what I'm about to do, and you're, you will have no sin. But if you don't see, you're blind. If you think you see, your sin remains, you see? So it's a matter, it's a matter of humbling ourselves and saying, we don't see, Lord, teach us, show us. And that's why the humble could hear the gospel and the proud did not. They thought they saw. Now, what's so cool about the saints is it's been told that we need to preach law to prepare people for grace. Some people believe that you need to preach the bad news first before you preach the good news. But you know what? There's not a single scripture that says Jesus sent them out into the world to preach the bad news first and then the good news. Not a single one. He said, go forth and preach the good news, the gospel, to every creature. Go forth and preach me. Paul said that the, God had separated him from his mother's womb in the beginning to preach that I might preach him, Jesus himself. This is so awesome, saints. You have in your lips, your words, your tongue, you have the power to open blind eyes if you speak the light. There's only one light that can open the blind eye. It's not the law. The law is what gave them blindness, gave us blindness. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a picture of the law. Actually, the picture of the law is a picture of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law is actually a picture of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Paul says, through the law is the knowledge of sin, and through the law there's not the knowledge of good. Through the law we find out what is good and what is evil. Because remember, saints, the, the, the deception in the garden was not, as some people teach, that they wanted to be like gods. They wanted to be God. No, God wanted them to be like Him. He made them in His image. David said, I will rejoice when I awaken thy likeness. God wants them to be like Him. That's not the deception in the garden. The deception is this. The enemy said, you can be like God without God. If you knew what he knew, if you knew right from wrong, you could do it too. That's the deception. And that's what's inside of the, that's the essence of the blindness. That's why you hear people talk. I heard on the radio, they interviewed some people on the street about what they believe, um, you know, if they were to stand before God and ask God if, if, um, if, if you were to stand before heaven and, and, or before God and, and give, you were to give God a reason why he should let you into heaven. You know, that story we hear, that word, that question we hear a lot. And it was amazing, the people they interviewed on the street, and some said, well, I just think God would let me in because I've been pretty good. Or they would say, well, I think my good really outweighs the bad. Um, one guy said... I don't know, I think I'll be toast. Uh, you know, it's like we have this deception that's in us, the, the blindness that we think we can do and be righteous. 
It's a deception that we can do enough to be good enough. The blindness is removed. The veil is removed when we proclaim Christ, the light, the true light. John said it this way. He said, Jesus is the light that enlightens every man who comes into the world enlightens every man. You see, in our blindness, in our deception that we think we can be good enough and be righteous enough, a light has shown that is unlike any other light. Unlike any other light. It's a light that doesn't expose us. It's a light that beckons us to come. See, that's why they said Jesus, no, there's no other man spoke like this. No other man spoke like Jesus spoke. They would hear him, and the, even the Pharisees would say, I've never heard anyone speak like this. And the reason why no other man spoke like Jesus spoke is because he never turned people back to themselves to find their answers. He never said, get this straight in your life. Do this, and you'll be okay. Take these 10 steps to holiness, and you'll be holy. Do this. Do you, you, do, you, do. He never talked like that. What he did was say, don't be afraid. Come to me. Don't be afraid. Bring it to me. Don't be afraid. Come to me. Bring it to me. Come to me. Come to me. It was a light that was beckoning them to come into the light. It was, there was no fear in it. Such that even a prostitute could wipe his, his feet with their tears. With no fear. And a sense of full acceptance. It was awesome. You carry within you a revelation of this light. That when we speak him and don't mix it with law. Brings the power to remove the veil. I'll prove it to you. Look at this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All people are born blind, but there is a light that can open the eyes. I love that scene in Lord of the Rings where Frodo's given that light, you know, that he puts around his neck. And she says to him, This is the light. That will shine when all other lights go out. This is the light that shines when all other lights go out. He himself, he himself is your light. And he beckons you to come to him without fear. Look at this, saints. It's so awesome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, but their minds were hardened, speaking of the Jewish people, and really all people, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. This is amazing, saints. The veil that Paul is talking about is the veil that every natural human being gets when he's born into this world. And the reading of the old, co- of, of the old covenant reinforces the veil, reinforces the blindness. The reading of the law reinforces the blindness. God has not sent us out to preach the law and then grace. God has sent us to preach grace, to preach Christ, the only true light. It's the only thing that will remove the veil. For when a man turns to Christ, the veil is removed. Look at this in chapter 4, 
Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God, little g, God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. See, the only power he has to blind is if you don't believe. If you don't believe, he has the power to blind. That they may not see the light of the gospel or the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Isn't that awesome? See, the veil remains as long as people... And I believe what, the reason why Paul said in the reading of the Old Testament or in the reading of the Old Covenant, the veil remains, is because in the reading of it, the tenses of the verbs reinforce a thinking of self-righteousness. If you do this, God will do this. If you do this, God will do this. If you don't do this, it's the reading of the tenses that reinforce this veil in the law. The law itself is not a faith. It is not a faith. So the reading of the law itself actually binds people's thinking and blinds them to the faith and the grace of God. It's, it's actually like, um, it's like Paul said. Paul said, the, the righteousness which is by faith does not speak like Moses spoke. Paul said, the righteousness, which is by faith, does not speak like Moses spoke. And he reworded the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10 and reworded the law, reworded Moses to say, you don't talk like that anymore, that if you do this, God will say you're righteous. And if you don't do this, you're going to be cursed. That's no longer the righteousness, which is by faith. This is how you talk now, that Christ himself is your righteousness. This is the word of faith that is in your heart and in your mouth. If you believe, you're righteous in the heart. Isn't that awesome? So in the reading of the Old Covenant, it actually reinforces the law in the minds of the people. So what we need is to see that we are, people are blind. And God wants us to speak the simplicity of Christ. Leave it to the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. The scripture says that the world is convicted of sin because they believe not on Jesus. But if you don't preach Jesus, how can the Holy Spirit convict them for not believing on Jesus? See, if you preach Jesus, if you preach the light, this awesome good news, and, and let me just say succinctly what the good news is. The good news, the gospel, is this, that Jesus himself is really, truly the son of the living God. And he took upon himself our judgment. He took upon himself the sin of the world from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. And judgment fell on him instead of us. And if anyone would believe on Jesus, they would receive the complete forgiveness of all sin, past, present, future. Complete. By simple faith. There's more to it, of course, but that's the simple gospel. They also get righteousness. They get life. They get inheritance. They get God as their daddy. I mean, there's a lot involved in this, but the, but the simple word is, if you believe on him, if your faith is in him, you shall receive the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. That's when the Holy Spirit comes. You know, I hear a lot of uh, altar calls, so to speak, and on TV and uh, radio, you hear people calling people to Christ. Saints, let me just say this, that calling people to make Jesus Lord of their lives is not the gospel. Calling, calling people to, to 
commit their lives to Jesus is not the gospel. Not the good news. Calling people to rededicate their life, surrender their life to Jesus is not the gospel. All those things are calling people to do something. None of those things are calling the people to believe something. To believe someone. The power that brings the Holy Spirit is a powerful, bold statement that if you will believe on Jesus, on this Jesus, you shall receive the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. That's what we can do. A blind person can only do that. Can only believe with the light coming through with that gospel. The scripture says, through, the, through thy word is the entrance of light into that blindness. That's all we can do. That's our problem. We can't make Jesus the Lord of our life. We can't commit our life. We can't surrender our life. Those are all fruits of the Spirit of God in a, in a believer's life. But, we need to, but people are afraid. Religion is afraid to release people from their sin. Not Jesus. That's what he came to do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You start giving a bold statement to people, to the world, to a blind world, with this word of light from another world that beckons them to come instead of exposing their sin, you proclaim that if you believe on Him, all your sins are forgiven. All your sins in the past, even now, and all your life on earth shall be forgiven in this great mystery of death and resurrection by the one who took upon himself the sin of the world. For he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's awesome. This is the power of the gospel. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Religion does not see this wisdom. Religion says this is foolishness to release people from sin, to release them from condemnation. Religion says it is no, there's no power in that. You must make them dedicate. You must make them commit. You must make them surrender. You must make them do, do, do. No! God will do in us, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. It's awesome! We must see that the people we're ministering to are blind. And therefore, we don't just give them information. We give them a revelation. We bring the light of Christ and we're bold to proclaim this light. Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, quoted Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, to bring sight to the blind. And then Jesus speaks to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, Paul, arise, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes. First thing he said. First thing he said. I'm sending you to open their eyes. Let's look at the next thing real quick. The second thing, the world. This is so powerful. The world has been cleansed. See the world is cleansed. See, the world is cleansed. Let me just go through this really quick. There's so much that could be said about all four of these points, but let me just go through. This is so awesome. Look at Acts, if you would, Acts chapter 10. See, the world is cleansed. Acts 10, 15. What happened here was, as, as you've read this before, I'm sure where Peter had a vision, and he saw this white sheet come down from the heavens, 
four corners of a sheet with unclean animals in the sheet. And it came down to the earth. And it was lifted up above the earth and brought back into the heavens. And three times Peter saw this vision of unclean animals being brought down to the earth and then up to the heavens. Carried up by this sheet, the four corners of a sheet. And he heard a voice say to him, kill and eat. Eat these Eat these unclean animals. And Peter responded, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a Jew. I I don't eat bacon. (laughs) And and the Lord said this. He said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This is powerful. Powerful. God was about to send Peter to the Gentiles, and he knew that he, as a Jew, could not go into the house of a Gentile. They considered the Gentiles unclean. And so what God was saying to Peter was that God has cleansed the entire world. This is what we, we must see people not only as blind, but we must see people as already forgiven. Because they are. They just have to receive it. See, It makes sense. He died for the whole world for all sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having purged us of all our sin. He's not going to die again. It's done. So the whole world is forgiven. The whole world is cleansed. God says, what I have cleansed, don't no longer consider unholy in your thinking and no longer call unholy. In the next verse, later down, he says, and God has shown me I should call no man unholy. Look at this verse right here, saints. This is awesome. Look at chapter 10 and verse 28. Acts 10, verse 28. Peter says this, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Has God shown us that? Has God shown you that? Straight from the voice of God. God has shown me. God spoke to Peter. Now Peter says, I've learned something. from God told me I should call no man unholy or unclean. You, your approach, my approach to people will be completely different if I see that they are blind, if I see that they're already forgiven. They need only receive what he has done. From God's perspective, he has reconciled himself to the world. From our perspective, we need to reconcile ourselves to God by simple faith, by believing, by receiving what Jesus did. But God wants us to see all people already forgiven because they are. Their simple act of faith doesn't clean them. They were already clean. It just brings what God did to them personally. You see? Isn't that cool? So now we can look at the world and, and see them and put in a twinkle in our eye and go, dude, if you only knew. When we see the world has already holy, been made holy, then your, your emphasis to the world is not going to be get holy. You're not going to try them to. Do, you're not going to try to encourage them to do things to be holy when you see that they're already holy. You're going to try to encourage them to believe that they're already holy. You see the difference? I mean, it's complete. Instead of giving information to this blind person, and instead of trying to make this person who's already clean clean up their act, it totally changes your relationship with the world. Now you see a blind person that needs revelation. Now you see a person that's already been cleaned that needs simply to believe. And receive the cleansing that God has already accomplished. It's awesome. That's how Jesus explains Jesus' life on earth. How he walked around and ate with sinners and, and, and had a prostitute wash his feet. And the Pharisees were going berserk. How do you do this? How can you let this woman touch you? He saw them all forgiven because of him. 
He knew what he would do. He related to the entire world as already forgiven because he knew what he would do. Oh, I tell you, this is so, this is, this, this is so important that this vision that Peter saw, the, the four corners of the sheet speaks of the four corners of the world. The unclean animals that were lowered to the earth and up to the heavens again means that God has brought fallen man into the heavens with him by the work of Christ, if they would just believe. But they must believe. And this event that Peter had is repeated three times in the book of Acts. Peter repeats it and talks about it three times in a small book called the book of Acts where every word is important, where everything that's documented in the small book of Acts is so important that no word is wasted, yet God uses the the book of Acts and repeats this event three times. God wants us to get this. He wants us to see the world as forgiven, as cleansed, as holy, and call people to believe that they might receive what God has already done. Does that make sense? It's mind-blowing. I mean, it's really mind-blowing because we're used to seeing people as unholy or call them unholy. But God says, call no man unholy and don't consider them unholy. Reach out to them because I have already done the work. Call them to believe on me. Isn't that awesome? It changes the way. You, and people will be attracted to you because they won't sense that condemnation, that judgment. As they were attracted to Jesus, they felt accepted in his presence. They also will feel accepted. But there must be faith. There must be a belief. There's a concept out there called universalism that teaches that, universalism teaches that everybody's going to heaven from, you know, whether you're Buddhist or Christian or Jew or whatever, Hindu, that all roads lead to God in the end. We're all going to heaven. That's universalism. And of course, the scripture doesn't teach that at all. Without Jesus and his sacrifice, no man can come to the Father. But there's also a Christian universalism a Christian universalism that's, universalism that's spreading among the church, among the grace churches, and a lot, and lots of, a lot of the youth are picking up on this and, and adopting this view of Christian universalism. And I want to sound an alarm to you about this because it's, it's not scriptural. Christian universalism teaches that, yes, only through Jesus are you saved and only through his work, only by the grace of God, and only through faith in him, but everybody's going to end up believing Everybody's going to heaven. Whether in this life or the life to come, they're all going to believe and they'll all be in heaven. And so the whole world is not only cleansed potentially, it's cleansed actually. And everybody's going to heaven. And it's just not scriptural. It's actually, in my opinion, a different gospel. It's a different God. Because God is just. And sin must be judged. And if a person doesn't willingly believe and receive what Jesus has done, at his coming, at his coming, let's just read it. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. For, if, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The church was under great persecution being burned at the stake. And Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and he's saying, verse six, this is chapter one of 2 Thessalonians, verse six, verse seven, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When, Paul, when is this gonna happen? When is God gonna help us with this and deliver us? He says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Pretty clear. Jesus said, The Father judges no man. For he has committed all judgment to the Son. And then Jesus says, And I judge no man. I judge no man. For the word that I speak to you shall judge you in the last day. So the world who rejects him, the world who refuses to receive this love, will be judged at the end of the world. That's why Jesus said, Don't try to figure out who's a wheat, who's a tear. In the end of the world, the angels will divide the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. To teach that everybody's going to believe flies in the face of of so many scriptures, there's not enough time to read them all. And it makes, it gives a false sense of security to the the world. Instead of us reaching out and beseeching the world to be reconciled to God, it's like, well, doesn't matter. They're all going to be saved, they're all going to believe, they're all going to go to heaven. Christian universalism. Or universal reconciliation is another term it goes by. I just want you to be aware of this, because it's, it's, It's not life. It's not Christ. And it's not the gospel. And that's why God weeps. That's why he wept over Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you, but you would not. So just just be aware that the truth is, even though God has cleansed the entire world, he calls all men to believe. And as Paul said, not all men have faith. Not all men will believe. Take a look at this verse, same chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe, that, believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Powerful words. Notice that verse 10 says they did not receive the love of the truth. There's a lot of people out there that you can tell them, you'll talk to a blind person, spiritually blind person, knowing that they're already cleansed in Christ, and you'll talk to them, and you'll say, man, don't you see how much God loves you? And they will not receive the love of the truth. And because they won't receive the love, they harden their heart. The scripture says, when you hear, today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. That's why there were two thieves on the cross. You know, there were two thieves on the cross, and they were both crucified with Christ. One day I was reading that passage in John, and the phrase, they were crucified with Christ, and the Spirit said, look at that. And then I remember the Galatian verse 220 where it says, we were crucified with Christ. And God showed me, like, oh my gosh. That's a perfect picture. Because I used to think, why have two thieves on either side of Jesus? That kind of messes up the picture. Why can't it be just Jesus only? I mean, it kind of dilutes it, doesn't God? I mean, why can't you have just the Son of God there, not these thieves? And God showed me that because that is a picture 
of the work of redemption. He tasted death for every man, the believer and the unbeliever. They were crucified with him. He tasted death for every man. And only to one of those men did he say, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Because only one believed. The one that did not believe, Christ's death was in vain for him. Paul talks about that in his letters, how the work of Christ can be in vain for someone because they do not receive it, do not believe. But that's why there was two thieves on either side of Christ, showing that he tasted death for every man, but only one believed. Okay, number three, wrapping up real quickly here. Number three, we must see the world as spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. What does that mean, spiritually dead? It means that, that the issue, saints, with the world is not behavior, it's life. When we see the world as spiritually dead, that they need life, then you won't be trying to rearrange the chairs on the sinking Titanic in their lives. You won't be trying to preach behavior change or behavior modification. No, the issue is we're sinking and we need life. It changes the way you minister to people because you realize, oh my gosh, it's not a matter of behavior. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. Blind, yet cleansed, but dead. And they need his life. That's what Jesus meant when he told the Pharisees who were so concerned about the sins in other people's lives, trying to rearrange the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, so to speak, to help them be a better person while the, sink goes, while the, while the ship goes down. Because they're dead. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, he goes, he goes you are so worried about sins and, and, these, and other people's lives. You don't see the log in your own eye. The log? Yes, the log in your own eye. What is the log in the Pharisee's eye? The log in the Pharisee's eye, Jesus said, is that you can't just, you can't change the fruit of a tree. A tree is what it is. You must make the tree good, and it will bear good fruit. He told the Pharisees, you must make the tree good. Of course, they couldn't do that, and they didn't understand that. But what he was saying was that they must be born again. They must receive life. They must receive life. If, they, if you make the tree good, then the fruit will be good. The log in the Pharisee's eye was that they didn't see the need for life. Jesus said, if you take the log out of your own eye, if you get a revelation that these people are not, they don't just need a behavior change, they need new life. That you must be born again, you must receive life from above. If you can take that log out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because it's just a speck in God's eyes because he's done the work. See? When you see that it's all about life, then you can, instead of gouging their eyes out because you have a log in your own eye, you say, oh my God, it's not about behavior, it's about life. And you can lead them to Christ to say, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You must have life. And so life becomes the emphasis and not behavior change. We see this in the, in the garden. There are two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. In Christ, God has brought us back to the tree of life. In Christ, because that's, that's the issue. He who has the Son has the life. He who has not the Son has not the life. There's only two kinds of people on the planet. There are the people, the people that have life and those who don't have life. If you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. So now that we know that, those who have the life, we minister to them so that life may flourish. But it's not about behavior change. It's about a new life. Okay, and lastly, we must see the world as greatly loved by God, I think. These four things. 
see the world as blind, see the world as cleansed, see the world as spiritually dead, and see the world is greatly loved by God. These four things, saints, this vision from God, this view of God, that how God sees the world will change everything. God wants us to have compassion on people. God wants us to pity, pity people. You know, God wants us to never look down our nose at people. God loves people. The eternal purpose is God seeks a bride. And many that we think are not worthy to be in heaven are going to be in heaven because they simply believed. Jesus told the Pharisees that this prostitute will enter my kingdom before you because she'll see her need of me before you. We hear this asked all the time, what is the greatest commandment? And people are quick to answer, oh, I know that. Uh, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the question to Jesus was, what is the greatest commandment under the law? And that was a true statement under the law. But you're not under the law. What is the greatest commandment under your covenant? What is the greatest commandment under the covenant of grace? The greatest commandment is this. Because not that we first loved him, but he first loved us. And the greatest commandment under the new covenant of grace is this. That we believe that he loves me with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength. And the second is likened to it, he loves my neighbor like he loves me. It changes the way we look at the world. He loves me with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loves my neighbor like he loves me. It changes everything. God seeks a bride. God is in love. The very last pages of the Bible say, Behold, I show you the Lamb's wife as she comes down with glory from heaven. God is in love. Ephesians 5 says He cherishes and nourishes His bride. God loves the world. For God so loved this world that He gave His only begotten Son Whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So when we see that God is in love with the world, then we do our best to try to help people receive that love. We pray that they would receive that love. Not try to earn it, and not try to do it. Not try to love God. That's our problem. We can't love God. The world can't love God. That's the problem. That's the law and the prophets. If they could do that, Jesus wouldn't have to come. That's the problem. They could not do it. But a new hope has come where he has loved us. And he calls us to believe in that love and receive the love of this truth. And then the Holy Spirit is given to the believer and the love of God is shed abroad in the hearts and we find ourselves loving as he loves without effort because it's his love in us. I'll close with this. I was going through a hard time a while back and 
I had a dream. You know, sometimes you can tell the dream is because I ate too much pizza, and sometimes it's because... (laughs) Sometimes it's from the Spirit of God, and I feel like there's somebody here that's probably had some dreams, and you wonder, you've been wondering if that's from the Lord or not. Just ask him, and he'll show you. Usually a sign that it's from him is that it never goes away. You remember it in detail for years. Anyway, I was going through a hard time, and I just... You know, the enemy is always trying to beat us all up and keep us from our destiny and keep us from being who he called us to be. God is so good to encourage us sometimes in dreams in the night. I had a dream that I was driving down the highway and this huge storm was coming behind me. Big, billowing black clouds coming toward my car and I was trying to outrun it. And I couldn't outrun it, and the storm just came as huge, billowing black clouds. And I was trying to get, because I saw way down the road there was sunlight. And I was trying to get through this storm. And the rain was coming down, it was like very heavy rain. And the windshield wipers were going. And suddenly I saw on the windshield, on the outside of the car, a rose. A rose. And I was wondering in the dream, how does the rose stick out there? I mean, the rain, the storm, the wind... Even the windshield wipers missed it somehow. And I was like, how can this be? And the rose stood there against the glass, firm. And before long, clouds pull back. And in the dream, I was riding into the, the bright skies. The storm was over. And the rose was still there. He was telling me, I love you. Don't you fear. Don't you be afraid. I love you. I'm with you. Always. Even to the end of the world and beyond. Please stand. Lord, thank you that you're helping us see the world through your eyes. What gentle eyes. What beautiful eyes. Father, help us to see as you see. The world is blind. They know not what they do. The world is cleansed, and they don't even know it. The world is seeking for life, thirsting for life, and they don't realize it. And they are greatly loved by you. And they don't even know your name.
Help us reach out. 